You don't even have to be an armchair psychologist to figure out a great deal of what goes into performance has a lot to do with feelings of inadequacy, a need for constant validation, and an insatiable thirst for attention. Trust me, after 20 plus years in the game, I've had enough time to figure out the catalysts that drive me. And there have been many magic moments for me, many successes playing music that have stemmed some of these base needs and calmed my hyperactive hankerings. When someone I have looked up to in the field of music acknowledges and praises my efforts, it is an affirmation that goes deep down into my psyche, and I also see it as immediately restorative. Someone who plays music in a band that I loved growing up, who likes our music, our songs, our albums, man, it is the greatest feeling in the world. It's like being accepted by the cool kids, getting to eat at the cool table in the cafeteria. Those feelings from formative years have a a knack of hanging around. But as much as all that is tremendously satisfying, I must say that there is nothing quite like the feeling of going back and meeting with a teacher you once had and talking about the subject they taught you almost, almost on a peer level, almost. It is a new feeling, something I've only recently experienced, and it is marvelous. I recently met up with my old prof, Mr. Rob Bowman who taught the music and society course at York U that I took when I was going to film school. Professor Rob Bowman's reputations preceded him, and it was because he was teaching that I wanted to take the class. If you don't know who Rob Bowman is, but fancy yourself a music fan, chances are you've crossed paths with his work. Professor Bowman has overseen countless music releases, written the liner notes for even more. He's been nominated for five Grammys and won a Grammy in 1996 for Best Album Notes for the 10-CD box set of the Complete Stax Volt Soul Singles, Volume 3, from the years 1972 to 1975. He's also co-produced that release. He was nominated in the Best Albums Notes category for the Malico Record Story, uh, for the Complete Stacks Singles Volume 1 from the years 1959 to 1968, Best Historical Reissue for the Otis Writing Story, and Best Album Notes for the four CD box set The Stacks Story. Again, he also co produced and is considered the top authority on Stacks Records with his book Soulsville, USA The Story of Stacks Records, published in 1997. That also earned him the Sweet Soul Music Award at the Peretta Soul Festival in Italy and the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award. He's also written the liner notes for the Lou Reed Anthology, liner notes for releases by Rufus Thomas, Funkadelic, Isaac Hayes, Eddie Floyd, Jerry Lee Lewis, Sam and Dave, The Guess Who, The Barkays, The Band, Albert King, Booker T and the MGs, Staple Singers, Johnny Taylor, Billy Eckstein, and most recently, the 50th anniversary box set release 
of their satanic majesties by the Rolling Stones. That isn't even scratching the surface. I just don't have the time to list them all off. Let's just cap it here and agree that Rob Bowman is the authority when it comes to music. But for this episode, I reached out to him to talk about another release by Jackie Shane. Jackie Shane was a soul singer from Nashville, Tennessee, who had regional success in, of all places, Toronto, Ontario, Canada, my hometown, Rob Bowman's hometown. The story that surrounds Jackie Shane is beyond belief, since she was what would be considered today as transgender, but living life as a trans woman way back in the 50s and 60s. I mean, a black trans woman? That's, that was beyond brave, really mind-boggling. Her strange disappearance after 1971 had many people thinking for decades that she had been killed, but this year, with Rob Bowman's help, she sprang to life, almost out of the mist, and released any other way on Numero Records that compiled all her singles and her Jackie Shane live album in one giant release. I heard this album... And I immediately fell in love with it. Any Other Way is the end result of two years of Numero Group convincing Jackie Shane that her story was worth telling. When I saw Rob Bowman's name attached to the liner notes, I knew this was my chance to reach out. It had been many, many years since Professor Bowman taught a very bashful, insecure, twitching young man that was me but I now felt enough confidence, having logged enough miles out on the rock and roll road myself to hold my own in a discussion about music with Professor Bowman. I've done a lot of episodes for this podcast, but this one, this one was extra sweet. Professor Bowman is an orator of the highest level, and it was quite the trip down memory lane to see him again and hear him talk so passionately about music. It's inspiring, and his enthusiasm is quite contagious. So, sit back and enjoy this, this tutorial, if I may say so, on one of the most fascinating and electrifying people in music I have ever heard, Miss Jackie Shane. I want to thank everyone who has left a rating or a review on iTunes. If you haven't yet, please do so. Thanks to Skull Candy Headphones and Blue Mic Microphones for the support. And thanks to you for listening. Professor Rob Bowman is the latest guest on the podcast. And it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. They play the kid as Tango's go out to love for free. I'm so glad I like to sometimes. Jimmy in from fucked up. Stop playing. Hang down. Danko Jones has a podcast. It's called the Danko Jones Podcast. La da 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 da. La da 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 da. I got to know Danko a few years ago when I used my vacation time to follow the band on the road. And I even spent a day with Danko in some European town that escapes me. But we ended up talking about 17th century art, his pet rock collection, <laughs> the summers he spent as a teenage air traffic controller, his venomous snake collection, his passion for planking, and the night he spent with Ringo Starr's housekeeper. 
He's a fascinating character with a wealth of stories to share. And I'm a huge fan of Danko, but a bigger fan of his stories. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts now! It is great to have you on my podcast. It kind of, to me personally, it adds some legitimacy to the whole <laughs> project. Do you need legitimacy? I, you know, I'm always quietly wanting it, but I, <laughs> but um, the one thing I will say is, uh, and I never mentioned this in the emails or the phone calls, but uh, you are my old prof. My goodness, I had no idea. Dia. Yes. Wow. When did I teach you? Nineties uh, when I was uh, going to York. Oh, that's uh, great. Uh, music and society, I believe. Right, right, right. And um, uh, I took the course with a couple of friends of mine and Dallas Good, who is also a friend. Oh, but yeah, Dallas. I remember Dallas you, being in the of course. Of course, you remember. Dallas went up to you, and you guys hit it off. Dallas went up to me constantly, and of course, uh, he's telling me about his dad playing Festival <laughs> yeah. Express. And I'm going. I was there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I was watching at the back of the hall, uh, watching Dallas talk to you at one one class, going, well, that's just it. He threw down the Good Brothers, and you, he's away off to the races with uh, Professor Bowman. Um, <laughs> so, so so we took we took a couple of classes that year. We took another Cuban drumming class, which he aced. Oh, cool, cool. He did the, it was either Music and Society or Cuban Drumming, where he did the final essay on the subway and he got an a and i spent the whole like two weeks on it at home and i got like a b right you know it's like dallas is just that's just dallas right (laughs) so i didn't want to i wanted to drop that on you before we start oh that's too funny Uh, and dallas dallas you know i mean i don't see dallas all the time but whenever we do see each other it's great i mean you know he's a great guy he's obviously a great player and i'm so happy for sadie's done so well and uh yeah, he's somebody I remember very fondly because if I remember, what, he took more than one class with me, I think. Because he had one class that was early in the morning, it was like 10 o'clock. You know, by musician standards, that's early in the morning to be mm-hmm. up at York. Yeah. And uh, I remember he'd you know come in sort of dragging his ass, but he always came, which is amazing. Yeah, he given, was a, Given, it, uh, again, <laughs> that he was working and, uh, and um, he was just always so enthusiastic and so cool. Yeah, I mean, he came to the class like... Uh, a few miles ahead of everybody, you know, who who attended music and society, at least the one I took. Right, right, right. Um, but uh, 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 another thing was when when you were teaching the course, the one thing that always enters my head when I hear your name uh, is uh, Rob Bowman. That guy did a lecture that I saw wearing a Jesus Lizard T-shirt, and to me. <laughs> To me, you walked in with a Jesus Lizard shirt. And at the time, they were still kind of like underground, touch and go. They hadn't done anything sure. overground, like, sure. like Lollapalooza or something. Right. So you walk in there. I'm like, oh, okay. You're probably doing some lecture on Motown or something. So I go, oh, okay. This guy knows. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> to me, that was the marker that I was like, oh, it's not all the lectures about like Motown and, and, and whatever. But it was like you're... Jesus Lizard t-shirt, suddenly I was like, oh, he does know. 
He that, doesn't know everything. That, that was a great T-shirt, but it's, it, got, it wore out. It's terrible, right? You know where the rocket is? Developed a big hole there. I finally had to give it up. I have it. Uh, I, I found, need to get a new one. Yeah, I need to yeah, find one. Yeah. But, you know, same thing with my Big Star shirt. I've gone through for like four Big Star shirts. Um, I used to get, whenever I was down in Memphis, I'd buy one from Jody, Big Star's drummer, because he was making them for a while. Oh, wow. And Because uh, he and I are, are kind of friends. And uh, then he stopped making them. And uh, I kept wearing them out. And finally, somebody else is making them somewhere on the internet somewhere. somewhere. Oh, yeah. Paul, I've been pulling them up a few times. You can find it. You can find everything on the internet. Pretty now, close. Yeah. Although, you know what I'm starting to do now? I'm starting to make my own shirts. I mean, I want a bitch's brew. I can't find one. I just get a digital image. I take it down to one of these shops that does it. And there's, you know, they do them pretty well. And there's one in particular that's a great job. I have a beautiful Bitches Brew shirt with the front painting right here and the back painting on the back. Oh, it's so just gorgeous. It just envelopes your whole body. Well, no, no, it's two separate, you know, square rectangular right. images. But it's it's back and front just because that album cover is so beautiful mm -hmm. back and front. There's yeah. other things like Trout Mass Replica by Captain Beefheart. Mm -hmm. I just did the front here. Yeah. Um, I did Mahalia Jackson speaking at the Washington or singing at the Washington Monument just before Dr. King preaches okay. on October 28th, 1963. Did that one for Mavis Staples. I knew she'd just die when she saw that because Mavis and I have been good friends forever, and we're both Mahalia freaks. And uh, so yeah, I just keep I keep I keep coming up with ideas. Going, yeah, that would be a good shirt. I'm gonna go do that. Uh, you know, um, so I've been I've been doing. I don't know, probably done 25, 30 of them. Mm. That are just, okay, if no one's going to make the damn things. Right. These days I can make them. You should set up a shop. Nah, I can't be bothered. <laughs> you I should make a Ross Bowman shirt. I'd buy that. I thought that's what you were Yeah, right. About. That would sell about three copies. Um, but uh, no, no, no. And I would, never, I would never actually set up a shop, partially because it's not my rights. I don't have rights to these images. But since nobody else is using it, I have no compunction about putting on a one shirt that I can wear. Right. And... Uh, yeah, I love it. I, can, I have way too many shirts. My wife's always complaining about several hundred <laughs> rock and roll. Well, not just rock and roll, gospel, R&B, blues. I mean, oh, I got a great Muddy Waters one with a Christmas hat on, which is, you know, I wear that at Christmas time. But then on the top of my Christmas tree is Muddy Waters at the top and a Star of David. It's an ecumenical Christmas tree. Right. Given that I'm not exactly religious, but, you know, That's Muddy, Muddy's one of my gods. Right, right. And whoever made the damn thing, I don't know if they did it deliberately or not, but they put it in Star of David, which is even funnier. I mean, I'm not Jewish, but it doesn't really matter. But it's a sort of great Christmas tree, but Star of David. Right. Muddy. Right, right. I used to tell my kids when they were young, you know, and they go to school in kindergarten in grade one, and uh, you talk about your family's holiday traditions. And I say to them, you know, a lot of people put on the top of the tree angels and so on, but we have a God in our tree. It's <laughs> right. muddy waters. <laughs> right. So they'd go to school saying this. And, of course, their teachers would be like, most of them, who's muddy waters? Right, right. So... What is a muddy waters? What yeah, exactly. <laughs> what is anyway? Um, so. Anyways, um, I'm a maniac for it all, as you as you probably know. Oh yeah, I mean that's I, I get it. You okay, know? so I and, didn't know if you really knew who I was. So it's kind of funny now. Yeah, you clearly do. Well, here's the backstory to this episode. Is okay, I got the re, the not a reissue, but the the album release, the so Jackie Shane double album. Or you get the vinyl or the... See, or the vinyl. Yeah, the vinyl's beautiful. Yeah. So on the vinyl, there's this, what, 35-page booklet. Yeah, 22,000 words or something. And uh, I'm just skimming through it. I see your name there. And I read, I listen, I read. I realize there's a huge Toronto-centric slant to her story. 
Um, Big time. And then I go, you know what? I would love to reach out after all these years. I think I was even talking to someone before I got here. I'm like, you know, maybe now I can have a conversation with Rob Bowman, because when I took your class, I was just too intimidated to even go up to you going, oh, That's crazy. Oh, what's your favorite uh, Jesus Lizard album? But uh, I'm so friendly. <laughs> I know that, but still. I'm open. I'm not like one of these elitist asshole professors who no, but acts it, like they're above everybody. But that's not, it wasn't from coming from uh, an academic point. It was coming from like a music right. music scene kind of cool, you know, like I, I didn't feel confident enough. Um, I feel now I can. I reached mm-hmm. out to you after I read the liner notes. And uh, asked you to do this uh, if you could, because uh, Jackie Shane is someone I didn't really know, has such a Toronto slant to her story. Sure. And the album is phenomenal. <laughs> it's, I mean, for me, I started doing what I do inspired by Solomon Burke's Soul Alive and. Side A of ZZ Top's Fandango. Really? All the okay. monologues and all that crazy talk. Right, right, back right. Back and forth with the audience still prevails to this day. I'd rather not put my guitar down and just like rap to the audience if I could. And the songs to me are like kind of just break it all up. Um, but, you know, the guys in the band and my band that just want to play the song sometimes are like, you know, wrap this rap up. So when I heard. Any other way on the live? Oh, the monologue and the money, a, yeah, and money especially. Yeah, those My two are incredible. My jaw just dropped, and I go and I said, "Look, I gotta reach out." And Jackie would do those every night, right? And as you would have read in the liner notes, because I'm sure I quote her in there talking about this, she talks about how people would ask her to speak more. In fact, people love that part of it. They would just wait for it, yeah. and for Jackie, that kind of. I was really going to say preaching. In some ways it is. You call it monologues, rapping, preaching, whatever you want to call it. It does come out of her experiences in the church. Mm -hmm. Jackie and I first connected because we're both black gospel freaks. In fact, we first connected when I dropped the name about the caravans and the 1957 recording of Mary Don't You Weep was Nez Andrews on lead vocals. Jackie said, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. She goes, you don't know about that. I said, you want to bet? And we started singing it together. Jackie's a gospel freak. And those monologues, she said, absolutely came out of church experiences. And she, she just would hold audiences mesmerized by them. I talked to so many people who saw her. And... Those moments were, she's a great singer, obviously, as you said. I mean, the record's phenomenal. Everything she did is, I mean, you know, forgetting the incredible story about her sexuality and the obscurity, disappearance act, and all that stuff, which is made for Hollywood, for Mm. heaven's sake. But in and of that, soul collectors have collected her forever because she is so amazing at what she does. Then you put it together with those sort of church-inspired monologues, it's incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's what really was the, the, the straw for me, those, those two tracks. But cool. I have to go, I have to, I've got tons of questions to ask you about her. First of all, how did this, how did this release come to be? This is the deal. Um, in 2010, Elaine Banks at CBC did a documentary, a radio documentary on Jackie Shane. Whatever happened to Jackie Shane? Elaine couldn't find Jackie. Elaine interviewed a whole lot of people who had either played with Jackie, knew Jackie back in the day, and it was partially about just how great this woman was. Um, 
thought of as a gay man back then, but very much a woman now. Um, and a lot of the show was based around a mystery. She disappeared. She left here in December 1971. And as Jackie told me, I deliberately disappeared from the face of the earth and I wanted no one to find me and I was successful. And she was. Except for a little blip. 2005, uh, her former band leader, Frank Motley, was being interviewed by a Toronto researcher named Bill Munson. And Motley gave Munson Jackie's phone number. Jackie could have killed Motley for that. Munson phones Jackie, wants to interview her. Jackie will not do it, tells him a couple pieces of information, gets rid of him. Munson gives the phone number to Steve Kennedy, who used to be in Motherload and Dr. Music. Jackie knew Steve from when she lived in Toronto and played music here. So when Steve called, Jackie's willing to talk to Steve. And they talked for a little bit. I don't know how long. Um, and then Steve called a year back. The number's no longer good. The people answered the phone had never heard of Jackie Shane. So the, the trail went dead again, if you will. So this 2010 CBC doc is all about this. It goes, saying viral would be an exaggeration, but it is heard around the world by lots of people. Soul collectors were turning people on to where you could find this on the net. And there's a guy in England named Jeremy Pender who had lived in Toronto for a year and a half in the 60s and would go see Jackie a lot and adored Jackie. Jeremy was the one who found her. Jeremy's <laughs> ingenious guy. He figured out who was, a, who was a high school friend of hers from Nashville and figured this person might know where she was in Nashville. And indeed, this person did. And Jeremy got a hold of this person. He's another soul singer from that period. Jackie used to sing on shows with him and stuff. Matt worked a carnival with him. And he agreed to do a three-way call, introduce Jackie to Jeremy, and then see where it went. Jackie liked Jeremy. Jeremy then started posting on the internet when people would say, oh, Jackie had been murdered in California because there's all these rumors about Jackie who had been killed. That was all over the net. Right. And Jeremy goes, no, she isn't. I talked to her regularly. So people started hitting up Jeremy. People wanted to get to Jackie. Filmmakers wanted to get to Jackie. Journalists wanted to get to Jackie. And he would take everything to Jackie. Jackie just say, nope, not interested, not interested, not interested. Wouldn't talk to anybody. Until this one guy from Numero Records. She would let them do all her stuff legitimately. She would finally get paid properly. And life would be good. And then, of course, they you know, explained to her from the word go, if we do this, you need somebody to write the liner notes. We know who we want. This guy, Rob Bowman, so we want to introduce you to him. So it became a three-way conversation. Jackie balked at the first two. Canceled. She's very, very gun-shy. Very much a recluse. So twice we set it up. Twice she wasn't ready for the phone call. Third time it finally happens. And within minutes over that caravan song, we connected. And Jackie suddenly just, we bonded really, really well. We did 33 hours of recorded interviews. 33 hours. And we talk every week for an hour to three. Nothing's ever short with Jackie. She likes to talk. Um, literally, I talk to her, what's today? It's today, Wednesday, right? Sunday night, we talk for two and a half hours. And I'll probably call her again next Sunday or Monday. Um, and we've developed now a close friendship. She's an amazing woman. She's 77. 
And I say woman, she was born a man, as I'm sure you know. But at the age of 13, she said to her mom, I'm a woman in a man's body. Now dig this. This is in Nashville, 1953. And if you know anything, and of course you would, but I'm saying for listeners' benefit as well, if you know anything about American history, of course, it was a time of deep, deep segregation and Jim Crow laws. So first of all, being black in Nashville in the South is not a great place to be. Then, as a 13-year-old boy, you go up to your mom and say, I'm a woman in a man's body, and your mom is hip enough to say, that's fine. And her mom then takes her to a carnival or a circus, I can't remember which, but she takes her to the freak show. She goes, you see that one-armed man, you see this person with this, quote, deformity, or this or that? They're all magnificent. They're all God's creatures. She turns to Jackie and goes, you're magnificent. Don't ever let anybody tell you anything else. It's an amazing, amazing mother. Jackie mm-hmm. remained very close to her forever. That gave Jackie a certain strength of self-identity and a willingness to just not let anything get in the way. And so she started wearing, actually, makeup. He, I guess, technically, started wearing makeup to school. Back then, 13-year-old black kid in Nashville must have been insane, but survived it and uh, developed into this extraordinary performer. Mm -hmm. And if you read the liner notes, which I'm assuming you have, Mm -hmm. there's a whole story here that nobody knew. I didn't know it. We all knew her as a great singer in Toronto. Um, And, of course, not just Toronto, Montreal, Boston, lesser degree Washington, and certainly California, playing with Etta James for several years, in fact, in California. But nobody realized she'd been a drummer. (laughs) She'd been an incredible drummer playing on these gospel records on Excello, hit R&B records by people like Lillian Offit, later on Lowell Folsom's Tramp, which, of course, Otis Redding and Carla Thomas cover. And you mentioned the uh, she she came up with the drum patterns for Chuck Connors. Oh, yeah, for for Little Richard records. It's just, like, wild. And then and in her last session ever as a drummer, she's playing a Joe Cocker second single on the B-side. <laughs> There's just these little things that you, about the story that, I, that add flavor to the whole saga of, of Jackie Shane. Well, then there's stuff about being kidnapped twice by gangsters. <laughs> right. There's working in carnivals. There's... Uh, That's just a road story. You, you mean, know, <laughs> working... Yeah, right. Working with uh, huckster ministers selling fake uh, cure-all potions and Jackie realizing how to work audiences and, you know, right. how things really do work in this world and how right. naive some people are and mm. how hip other people are. Uh, Jackie's story... And by the way, what you read in those liner notes... Obviously, with 33 hours of recorded material, that's only a fraction of what I have. Right. I mean, that's the stuff pertinent to outlining the story in the broadest sense and talking about the music that's on the reissue. Do you have but, enough for a book? Um, I don't think I've got enough for... Put it, well, there's two answers to that. First of all, there's a ton of stuff, obviously not there, that would be great for a book. But there's another layer of stuff that Jackie has told me about that I'm sworn to never talk about. Right. And I won't unless Jackie ever says, you know, let's do it. But um, that stuff's just beyond crazy. 
I mean, it's, 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 it's insane uh, in the best way possible. Uh, I would make an amazing book, an amazing movie, but we'll see what happens. I mean, Jackie at the moment, you know, New York Times just did a big feature on her. The Globe's done a big feature on her. So that's, you know, New York Times reaches right across the U.S. The Global Cross Canada, Out Magazine, hitting the LGBTQ community. She just did NPR in Europe, which covers most of the continent. Um, she's only going to do five interviews. That's what she agreed to do for Numero. Mm. But they're five very strategically placed interviews that's getting her unbelievable exposure. And there will be a documentary film. I've talked to six directors in the last week and a half. Wow. And I've got another one calling me tomorrow morning. Um, and it's, you know, Jackie wants to do it. Um, we'll see. This is the woman, remember, who's been in hiding since 71. Right. And I'll tell you this as well about her. We're close. I've never seen her. I was going to ask. It's all on the phone. And uh, I was in Memphis speaking at a funeral in February for Marvell Thomas, Rufus Thomas's son. And I said to Jackie, you're going to be in Memphis. You know, I'm just a few hours away from Nashville. i got a car. Come up. We could have lunch. Mm-hmm. And she hesitated and said, I'm, I'm not quite ready yet. But, you know, I said, we talk weekly. And she's talking about performing again. She talks to me about the documentary and how she wants it done. Um, she wants me talking to people, uh, you know, in terms of finding out who I think might be good for it and then narrowing that down and then bringing her stuff. So she has ideas and she seems to be psychologically ready to mm. move forward, mm. but she has to come out of that house. Right. And I'll tell you one other thing that's kind of interesting, that... Uh, teenage friend of hers that Jeremy Pendry used to finally get to her, mm-hmm. he has never seen her since she came back to Nashville. He had her phone number. He's cut her lawn for several years helping her. He's never seen her since she returned. That's how reclusive Jackie is. Tell you another thing about Jackie. She's kept everything. She has 20 trunks of her stage clothes. She designed them all and kept them all. She's got posters. All the pictures in that numeral set, except for right. a very few come from her collection. Oh, okay. She's she's a pack rat who's actually been able to keep, as far as I can understand, an unbelievable treasure trove of material. So the visuals that are available for to do a doc or to do a book are are quite extraordinary. I mean she's she is just an amazing person. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> you laid it out really well. In one, one answer. However, that tends to be my job. <laughs> uh, yes, I mean it was a and lecture. My, and my modus operandi, <laughs> yes. But there's a few questions. Sure. Um, now, reading the liner notes, which is all I have on her. Okay. Um, it's all anybody's got, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Right. Um, she had never done an interview before, ever. Like never done an interview before my interviews. Even when she was performing from the late '50s through '71. The only kinds of conversations she ever had with media were like somebody from the you know local newspaper, like the Globe and Mail, would go down to the show at the Concord or something, talk to her between sets, maybe get two sentences that would appear the next day in the newspaper. That's it. Never actually an extended interview of any sort. Hmm. Probably those kind of conversations weren't even recorded. She'd never done radio. There wasn't a press that was interested back then. Right. So literally, she had never done an interview. Well, I mean, okay, so all I have are these liner notes, and it says, 
you wrote that it ended badly with Frank Motley twice. Correct. He kept calling her back. She came back, and then it would just end in a fight. So having it, having it end so badly, why was it Frank Motley that was the one who had her contact, the only one who had the contact? It's an interesting thing. You might think of it as a bad marriage. Motley was the vehicle by which Jackie got out of the South in many ways. She came up to Canada through a carnival. Right. Went to Cornwall, left that, goes to Montreal with a band from Nashville who gets deported pretty quickly in a very bizarre gangster-involved right. situation. Right. Jackie's kind of on her own in Montreal, not sure what she does, what she's going to do. Stumbles into Motley performing at the Esquire show bar in Montreal. And for those who don't know, Motley was a black trumpeter from North Carolina who played um, two trumpets at once. That was his shtick. Yeah. And Motley was really big in the Toronto, Montreal, Boston, Washington quarter. He literally had the circuit of those four places. He played for four months straight at the Esquire at one point in Montreal. Four months. Um, and and back then that wasn't so uncommon. Four months was extreme, but playing for two weeks at a time or four right. weeks at a time in one place. So Motley had a good thing going. And uh, Jackie sat in, Motley hired her instantly. And so Motley was her ticket. That took her to Boston, that took her to Montreal, I mean Toronto, that took her to Washington, that took her into recording studios. And he was kind of... Wanted to be her manager, Swin mm -hmm. Galley, and to some degree was at some point. But Motley was a drunk. Motley was a mean person. Motley um, abused Jackie in several ways. Now, Jackie also stood up for herself. I don't know if this is in the liner notes or not, but there was a time in Montreal where he threw an ashtray at her head. I think there's something was in Toronto mentioned. Uh, and, and, and she, she basically said, she said to kill him. To, yeah, uh, you ever do that again? And... Uh, you know, your life is on the line kind of thing. Jackie, more than once, had to tell a few people that. Right. And although she never committed any acts of violence, um, Jackie did have a gun. Jackie did know how to use a knife. And Jackie was willing to protect herself if she needed to. But she stayed in this bad marriage kind of thing. Mm. Till finally it got so bad, she told the band, it's him or me. The band chose her. Yeah. And that indeed was the case for a while in, in late 67, 68. Jackie goes back to California. Motley's not doing very well. He's struggling, trying to get gigs. It's not making the money he used to make. And yes, he begs her to come back and promises it'll all be different. Sounds like a bad marriage, doesn't it? Yeah. Begging your partner to come back. I've changed. It's going to be different. You know, I'm no longer a drunk. This, that, and the other thing. She agrees to come back for three months at the end of 71, which is when they reunite. And um, when the three months time is up and she says, okay, I'm going to be heading back to California, which is where her mother was and um, where her lover and her decided they wanted to live. Motley didn't want her to leave because she was his meal ticket at that point. And so Motley uh, basically says... Uh, yeah, can't, I'm not going to pay you for the last two weeks. You know, you stay, I'll pay you. Yeah. It was kind of things I always keep you waiting on the last two weeks' pay, and you work for me forever kind of bullshit. Yeah. She actually went home to get her gun to settle this, then decided smartly, if I do this, I'm going to be facing a judge and jury. It isn't worth it for a couple weeks' pay, and instead just left. Right. That was the that was the end of the relationship. You know, it's 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 something that bothers me sometimes or I don't know if I quite I think I, I have some sense of why but Jackie 
in, in, for whatever reason, didn't want to, didn't have the strength to, or didn't have the confidence to just go out on her own. Yeah. She relied on Motley, and although she did run her band for a little while, it wasn't very long. In the late 50s, she'd run a great band, as I understand it, uh, but then had problems with the saxophone player there, one who was uh, harassing her sexually, and again came to the point where she, um, he threatened actually to cut her face at that point. So that band ended badly, needless to say. And she was just tired of all this stuff and um, never, ever decided to just take the bull by the horns, form a band, lead it. you got to remember, although technically a man at the time and a gay man is the way people would have viewed Jackie, um, for whatever reason, just didn't want to do it on her own. It, it's, it was kind of frustrating for me to read the liner notes at some points because... She refused so much stuff. She closed, locked doors that were open to her. Oh yeah, television. Dick yeah, Ed Sullivan. Like, <laughs> like and, and also you, you you casually mention this, and you don't go go into it deeply in the in the liner notes. But this how like in '63, how Atlantic and Motown traveled to see her. Right. And it, it I think it says in the liner notes like and nothing came of it or something. But like. What is what is further t- in that little side piece? You know the the Motown, the Motown. So and she, she didn't remember who from Motown. I wish I had I had a name. Right. But a couple people came up to Toronto from Detroit from Motown. Right. Came to the Sapphire and wanted to talk to her. And she thought they were just typical slick record weasels. And Jackie is very much her own person. And Jackie, partially because of where she came from, her experiences because of her identity and sexuality, her strength partially coming out of her mother, and her sense of herself and not ever being interested in compromising herself uh, on an individual level or on a musical level, just wasn't really interested in talking to anybody who's a record company weasel who, yes, wanted Jackie, but wanted Jackie on their terms, not on Jackie's terms. Right. And, you know, when I tell, when I tell you that she's got all these plans, documentary film, Hollywood fiction film, right. performing, she's serious. She's ready. But I'll believe it when I see it only because I could easily see her deciding... Forget it. Yeah. Because if it can't be done in her terms, it's not going to be done. And, you know, a lot of film directors aren't going to want to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, you know, in terms of in terms of the, her idea of gigging, I've already got promoters in, in Europe calling me. But, of course, they want to bring her over solo and use a local band. They claim they've got great bands. Jackie isn't going to do that. No. She's going to have her own band. It's going to be a big band with horns, of course, nine-piece or ten-piece. And it's going to cost a lot of money to make that work. Yeah. So and she doesn't have the the profile to get that guarantee to bring those people yet. Yet. And so I could easily just see it reaching an impasse. Okay. Yeah. Well, you're not going to do this, and I'm not going to do that, and nothing happens. Yeah. That said, that said, yeah. I'm I'm very op- I'm optimistic, and uh, I have lots of ideas, and I'm talking to people who. Well, even advance the money to have that band rehearse, rent a rehearsal space, and 
pay musicians to work with her in Nashville with the idea, but she'd have to commit to four or five gigs. I, I mean, this is going to sound like very self-serving, and I, so I'm kind of, I feel odd, odd saying it, but throughout my career, which I've done well, life's gone very well for me, but I've been pretty pig-headed. I've been pretty pig-headed only being willing to do things on my terms, what I see as right, and what I see has integrity, and I'm always on the artist's side. Mm-hmm. I have fought with record companies. I have fought with film directors. I have lost opportunities, which is fine by me, to do things the wrong way because I'm not interested. And Jackie sees that. And Jackie told me things that I recorded in our conversations that she hadn't even told her mother. She flipped one day when she started telling me stuff, and she says, I can't believe it. I've never even told, I've never told anybody, not even my mother. Then she started nearly hysterically, hysterically sounds like the wrong word, but just laughing and laughing. And there's this joy. It's like, she goes, it's such a burden to have told somebody this stuff. It's, it's such a burden lifted from me. And she had just never, you know, and she swore me to never talk about it, but that's how close we became. And she could trust me enough that she would tell me that stuff because she knows that I won't ever use it. Mm -hmm. In fact, what I did, although she didn't ask me to, I actually sent her the notes before I would send them to Numero. Right. Because although I was confident I hadn't betrayed anything she didn't want out there, I wanted her to make sure she was 2,000% happy. so that's the kind of integrity I bring to what I do, and it's it served me well uh, for the most part. Maybe cost me a few bucks here and there, but I could care less about money. That seems easy to save, but I mean that. I do okay, and um, I'd rather make a lot less and do what I believe in. And fortunately, having that attitude, I've still done well. Yeah. Um, and Jackie gets that, and that's one of the reasons we're pretty close. Right. And she's got the same attitude. If we do a doc film... It's not about the amount of money anybody's going to bring to it. I mean, it's partially is. It's got to be done at a high level. But we'll take less money for the person who will do Better it result. Yeah. in a way that represents her more accurately. And it's really, really important to her. She was really pissed off about, you know, people talk about her dressing on Dragon Stage. She never yeah. did that. She dressed very feminine. That's what I wanted to ask you as well, because it was puzzling to me. Looking through the photos, oh yeah, and reading the quotes from different people, there would be one person who would refer to her as he. And the next person refers to her as she. They've both seen her or or even played with her, and I was having trouble trying to figure out how she presented herself back then. Well, I'm, back back then, she very much. Uh, nobody understood the idea of transgendered. Right. I don't think she told anybody I'm a woman in a man's body except for her mother and maybe some very close friends. Right. Everybody understood Jackie is male. Everybody understood Jackie is clearly a gay male at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jackie did not hide her sexual identity. And so people back then tend to refer to Jackie as a he. I've only known Jackie as a woman. Right. And so I refer to her as a she, and people who have contact with her now, and some people also who haven't had contact but have still made the switch because they understand she's made the switch. Mm-hmm. Or, or she didn't make the switch. She's just now public with the switch, if you will. But on stage, Jackie, in the 60s, ap- appeared very much as a man in 
feminine attire, meaning pantsuits, fingernails, earrings, Mm. light makeup, not heavy makeup. Mm -hmm. She's never in the whole burlesque transvestite thing, never the fake breasts, never the big hair, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, sort of women kind of tops that are, you know, just... Just not. It, it was clearly extraordinarily effeminate, effeminate man. It's almost clearly like, gay, uh, like a woman dressing up like a man, almost. In a way, or man, you know dress, I mean? man like dressing it, up like a woman, but without being a transvestite. Right. She hates the transvestite thing. Right. She sees okay. it as a mockery. Oh, she really? sees, oh, she sees it as satirizing and playing into the caricatures of what some people think of as people with different sexualities, mm-hmm. and that's not Jackie. Jackie treated her sexuality the way Mick Jagger treats his. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, Mick Jagger projects sexuality on stage. Right. And he plays with that with his audience. Jackie did that too. Jackie's sexuality is different than Mick's. But just as Mick treats his as normal every day, and this is what it is, Jackie treated hers back in 60, 61, 62, and so on in the same way. It was never this is exotic. This is odd. This is kinky. This is, this is, you know, edgy. That's not it. It's not the way Jackie saw herself or presented herself, which is one thing that's unbelievably cool. She saw herself as as normative as any straight person or anybody else. And yes, those monologues. She talks about chasing chicken, meaning men, yeah. in oh, Toronto chicken. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, that was that was slang for 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 cute guys. When she goes all, about, I didn't know that. Slang. Oh my god, you missed that. All oh about no, that chicken. On I heard monologues? the chicken. I heard the chicken, but I didn't know that it was slang for. Oh yeah, for men in the gay world. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, and back then at least. I don't know if it still is. I've but, never heard but that before. Jackie's talking about writing a song right now about Toronto chicken being the best chicken in the world. <laughs> um, she loves this city and loves a lot of the guys. She found in this city but uh because there's like stand up straight and tall like yeah. it, she calls her it's a young she didn't write it but it, she she's a young man in the lyrics young man yeah um so i had trouble trying to figure trying to jigsaw all this together how mm-hmm. she presented herself i will say this though could would you say that people like escarita and little richard Kind of laid a path for her to be more comfortable, and and for and audiences to go. Okay, this is part of the performance package. In some ways, yes. Although my guess, from talking to people, is in the 1950s, a lot of people when Little Richard exploded on the scene, mm-hmm. the vast majority of his audience didn't get that he was gay. Right. The vast majority of audience just see it as an exotic rock and roll star who is phenomenal. Right. Uh, it's only later as people began to become sensitive to different kinds of sexualities oh, yeah, right. that, well, of course he was gay. <laughs> yeah, right. The funny thing is Jackie met Richard when she was 15 mm-hmm. because, of course, Jackie's living in Nashville. Richard has his first big hit in 55. He comes to Nashville. Not surprisingly, he's connected into the Nashville gay subculture. Jackie's in that subculture. They meet each other. Right. They were friends from 15 on. She later designed his wigs in the early 70s after she left Toronto before she had a falling out with them. Jackie, one day, she's so funny. One day she says to me, because things would come back to her that she'd forgotten about because she hasn't done the interview. She hasn't been thinking about this stuff. Right. And so in you know, our, our third interview, she suddenly goes, oh, I, I recorded with so-and-so. And it's like, whoa. And we talk about this and that. <laughs> one interview, she comes on the phone and she goes, oh, I got to tell you this because I haven't told you this. You know Jim, right? And I go, Jim who? 
I'm trying to think of some soul singer she might have worked with. She goes, Jim Hendrix. I said, you mean Jimi Hendrix? She goes, yeah, that's right, Little Richard. <laughs> and then she goes, yeah, that's right, Little Richard's guitarist. Right. Because that's right. how she met Jimmy, right. was playing with Richard. Now, she knew Jimmy went on as mm-hmm. a solo artist, had great fame until right. he died. Yeah. And she knew Jimmy as a big star. He'd come to L.A. and, you know, play a gig at the Forum or something, and she'd be seeing him afterwards. Um, but he was just a friend. Right. Who'd, who'd just become a little bigger. Yeah. And, and and she really, her sense of, her sense of things is is so interesting. Now, I don't know how I got onto that. There's something you said about, about oh, Richard and Escarita paving the way. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm not so sure. I mean, first of all, nobody knew who Escarita was. Only those, you know, down south. Um, anybody in Toronto seeing Jackie or Boston seeing Jackie. Eh, maybe a few blacks, but I doubt it, knew who Escarita was. Escarita is a really obscure figure in rock and roll history who only got resurrected in the 80s because rock and roll maniac collectors like myself and others discovered these records that are so amazing. It was clearly a model for Little Richard. Yeah. And the stuff gets reissued and people get excited I, about I it. I buy the reissue. And yeah. Now Just I like know. most people don't know about Jackie Shane, but now a whole lot now of people are going to know about her who, yeah. who didn't before. It's the same with Escarita. So Richard was really the only one out there. And as again, I think people just rich, saw Richard as an eccentric maniac, which he was, hmm. uh, aside from his sexual identity, he was, <laughs> you know, a maniac. And um, I don't think many people twigged. Jackie was much subtler than Richard. Jackie was not over the top like Richard. Jackie was simply a great soul singer who, by the way, happened to be gay, as she was thought of then, as a he, and dressed in a feminine manner. And that was part of, for some people, a certain exotica to it. But Jackie didn't play on that exotica. Richard did. Richard played on his craziness and later played on his... When people began to understand what it meant to be gay, played on that. Richard Richard always played on all of that stuff. Jackie, never interested in playing on it. But those monologues on the, on the album? Yeah. Uh, that's how I really identified... I really kind of connected with Jackie Shane. Okay. Because even though you're saying she's more subtle, subtle than, than little Richard... Man, those are some real flamboyant monologues that I, you know, that's Harkins a performer, you know, more about more than a singer. She's a performer. She's a great performer. And those monologues are absolutely riveting. And she's going to hold an audience's attention like nothing else. I don't know if I'd call them flamboyant. They're. There's uh, that one where she goes. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And she's funny. She's funny. And, and, you know, she's just talking about chasing chicken and and, and stuff like that. But that's no different than Mick Jagger singing Straight Cat Blues uh, or Midnight Rambler. I mean, yeah, there's some frank sexual stuff without being being pornographic or or crude. Um, But it's frank in terms of desire, lust, uh, the fun of it, the excitement, and so on. That's being human. And she wasn't afraid to take it to the stage again. The way, um, yeah, I keep referring to Mick, but um, you know, I could refer to lots of performers yeah. who who do that. But yeah. you know, Mick's an obvious person who's made a big, you know, a career partially playing on that. Aside from his singing ability and the great band behind him, 
you know, that was part of what Jackie did. And and breaking down things and doing that monologue was something that was not standard necessarily, but not uncommon in the R&B world at that time. Okay. She certainly wasn't the first to do it. Solomon Burke, as you know, did it because mm. you told me before. You it's one of the ways you got into you know playing music. Mm. Those great, you know, Solomon was a master at it. Because perf- Solomon was a preacher. The performance part of it is incredible. Yeah, that and, album. And and Jackie didn't move a lot on stage. That's another interesting thing. She wasn't the kind of performer that was racing around the stage and uh, flirting with the audience physically on stage. In fact, Jackie kept her distance. She actually doesn't like hanging out or talking to fans. She likes them to see them on the stage mm-hmm. and then be mysterious and just disappear. I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to, you know, so, you know, some performers who will talk to their audiences forever privately. Mm-hmm. It's not that Jackie's a snob. She no. just feels that... Uh, um, a energy wise and B, uh, it's it's she thinks it's better for a career if there's that mystery. If people don't get to know her. I agree. Um, going back to the monologues. Yeah. The 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 album is called from three of supposedly twelve sets that were recorded at the Sapphire. That's correct. Do you know? Those other nine sets exist or no? I don't know if they exist. I wish I did. If I could have found all of them, we would have drawn on them. The story of that is that the live album came out originally with eight tracks. Then there were two singles, which also had material that was live from those sessions. And when the stuff was bootlegged, logically, the person who bootlegged them took the live singles, appended them to the live album, and we had a longer live album. Right. Um, the radio special that Elaine Banks did for CBC in 2010, I noticed listening to it that underneath some of the interviews, you know, she'd have music coming in and out and, you know, bringing things up when she'd talk about a song like any other way and then mm-hmm. bringing stuff down. But I noticed there was a couple of moments, maybe 25, 35 seconds, where I go, that wasn't on the live album. I've never heard that before. That told me there were outtakes. And they existed somewhere. Then I went chasing them. I could not get cooperation from Elaine at the time. And Elaine's now explained to me why she had some people hassling her and threatening her and some pretty ugly stuff that Outside she... of the CBC? Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. No, about after she did her Jackie thing. And I don't mean threatening her physically. I mean threatening her with lawsuits mm. about material and stuff. Right. And she she was just uh, very wary of the whole Jackie thing. She felt she'd been burned pretty badly by it and didn't know who I was and so didn't know how much she could trust me or not. So she didn't help me. She kept saying she might and then wouldn't. And But then I finally, um, I do a lot of work everywhere. I was working at the National Archive um, in Ottawa, and I asked them about this stuff. That's where it was. They had three sets. They didn't have all 12, but somebody donated three sets. So to get the material, I had to have Jackie write them to say, yes, please release this material to Rob Bowman because, of course, the co- who owns the copyright is questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not just going to give out master tapes to people. But um, Jackie's signature was good enough. And that's how I got them. And I quickly deduced most live album came from one set, but there were a couple of tracks pulled from two of these other sets. Nothing on the live album wasn't in these three sets. Okay. So clearly, 
when they recorded the 12 sets, they boiled it down to D3 was where we're going to draw the live album, and maybe that's why D3 still exists. Right, maybe, yeah. And uh, Or at least we're in one place, so that's mm-hmm. why we found them in one place. But besides finding other versions of any other way and money and so on, which part of me would have liked to put out, but Numero didn't want to. They didn't want to repeat songs. We found three songs that had were not on the live album mm-hmm. and nobody had ever heard it perform live. And so that's bonus material on this, which is great, great stuff. It's wonderful. Uh, I really would love to find the other nine sets because I'm curious, what else did she perform? Right. Uh, you know, there's... there's uh, She's told me about songs she performed at the Sapphire. Lots of great covers. Um, I don't know if they're in the other nine sets or not. Or, and at this point, the odds of finding them, I think, are low. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, the people who recorded it aren't ar- aren't around anymore. And uh, I don't know, but it's amazing we found that. Yeah, you you um, obviously know a lot of people in the music industry, so you can easily track down people for quotes and stuff, but. There, like, did you did you contact William Bell especially for this? Yeah, just just well, for Jackie. A, William's a friend of mine. Really? I mean, of course. I mean, you know, I wrote the book on Sax Records, right? Yes, yes. It was in the Blues Hall of Fame. I mean, it's it's won two of the three music book awards the year it came out. Well, William recorded on Stax. In fact, William was my very first interview about Stax back at the Peabody Hotel in the mid '80s. I remember that as clear as day. I interviewed William and, and later on that day, Luther Ingram, because they were both in town doing a package show. And, you know, I'd contacted both of them. And so William and I have been friends for years. I mean, I just wrote his program notes when he appeared at the Lincoln Center in New York. Uh, so, you know, I've got William's home phone and his cell phone, so that was easy to get to William. <laughs> Like for me, that was like, oh wow, that's the hardest one to get. Are you, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I understand. I mean, I have to kind of pinch myself. I, I can call and Booker T. Jones at home right now, or Steve Cropper, and you know, when Lou Reed was alive, I had his phone right. number. Isaac Hayes and I had each other's cell numbers. We call each other regularly. A lot of people I loved, unfortunately, have passed away. Yeah. You know, you want to call Mavis Staples? She's on speed dial on my cell. Um, <laughs> And I just saw her a week ago in Akron, Ohio. Right. But I don't mean that to brag. I just mean because of the work I've done, these yeah. people, they were my heroes growing up, yeah. but they become my friends too. Right. And it's not tr- true that everybody you interview becomes a friend and you continue a relationship. Um, but with a lot of these people I have, and William's certainly one of them, so that was really easy. Well, I find I connect with people who interview me who go deep. Right. With me, but also beyond me, just with the music. Um, being a music fan, now we're real music fans. There's a lot of people who do interviews who masquerade as journalists who just ask you what your favorite color is. I know. And, <laughs> what, what, you know, are, is it going to be a good show tonight? <laughs> I'm like, I, <laughs> what a lame question. I hope so. You, you so. know what I learned from Frank Zappa when I was 16? I was doing interviews when I was 15, and I started writing for magazines then, but I interviewed Zappa when I was 16. And I learned from Zappa that your job as somebody being interviewed is even if the person asking you a question is a complete moron, knows nothing, asks you the lamest questions in the world, that 
you have figured out what you're willing and want to say. Mm-hmm. And Zappa, it didn't matter what you ask, what's your favorite color? He'd go on and talk to you about his compositional techniques on his new record. Somehow he'd spin that right. question into telling you exactly what he wanted out there. And, of course, he was doing two things. One, he was getting out what he wanted to get out. Yeah. Two... He was actually making it easier for that lame journalist to have great yeah. quotes. And, you know, the net result was Zappa would get a better article, even with an idiot, right. as opposed to with somebody who really cared, who, of course, he was going to get something good from. And so, um, you know, you probably, I don't know if you picked that up with the interviews when people were interviewing you, but I certainly picked that up. And I've had people ask me the stupidest questions, yeah. but I just pivot and talk about what you know, I think is interesting to their potential listeners of the radio or readers of its print. And- right. Yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there's, you, you kind of, I'm not going to shoot them down or be rude. Although I learned my lesson not to do that yeah. over trial and error, but you don't, when, you don't get anything out of that. Yeah. And I learned the hard way on that. But now when I do meet a journalist who, you know, knows what they're talking about, my indication to them or to anyone around us is that I lighten up. And, and, and definitely want to talk more with them. Sure. So that's the indicator. And that's how you become friends with people. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, again, this sounds like I'm blowing my own horn, but I do a lot of stuff, right? Produce CDs. I write liner notes. I, you know, write part of the Rock and Roll of Fame induction program every year. The UN hires me to go and advise countries on their music industries. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Wow, wow. Small countries like Antigua and Jamaica and stuff. Um <laughs> I teach as a as a university professor, um, but of all the things I do, uh, I make document films. But of all the things I do, interviewing is what I consider to be the thing I'm best at. Mm. I think I'm decent at all these things, which is why I get work. But the interviewing is an art, and there's a lot of aspects to the art to do great interviews. But of course, a huge part of it is having encyclopedic knowledge and knowing your subject well enough as well as you can before you've met your subject to not ask them the same thing everyone else is always asking or to certainly approach it from a different angle. The other key thing for me, you're talking to musicians. Well, I'm a musician, so I can speak in musical terms and indicate quite quickly I can understand that. But the other thing, you just said something. And he, when people could tell that you, when you're being interviewed and you can tell the journalist knows a whole lot about music, you're immediately more interested in that mm-hmm. person. Because suddenly, forget the fact that you might be the person being interviewed because you're, on, you're making records, you're on stage, and they're writing for somebody. Both of you are two human beings who really love music. So I got Mick Jagger on my side, started telling him Solomon Brooks stories. I'd interviewed Solomon a lot. I knew Solomon really well. Jagger's a Solomon freak. Funny thing is, when I was eight years old, I heard about Solomon Burke because of Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones and right. bought my first Solomon record oh. You know, a couple years later. But um, that's what broke the ice with me and Mick was suddenly he was like wide-eyed because he's hearing these great Solomon stories he's never heard before. And suddenly it's no longer Mick Jagger, billionaire superstar, right. and some peon interviewer yeah. who he's so tired of being interviewed, he, you know, he does yeah. quick sound bites. He never goes in depth with anybody. We went in depth. That's great. Because we're then, we're then two record geeks, two music maniacs, yeah. sharing stories. And then I could pivot from there to doing a real in-depth interview for several hours with Mick. First one he'd done since 68. Wow. 
Mick doesn't do in-depth interviews. He no, does, I, he does no. media all the time, but yeah. they're always sound bites. And he's oh. great at sound bites because he's funny, he's charismatic. He can give you great quips, but he won't go in-depth. He doesn't want to. Jonathan yeah. Cott, 68. Then Rob Bowman, 2002. Wow. In terms of in-depth, long interviews. I think the, late, the only thing I've seen him kind of lighten up is when he was doing his own James Brown doc. Well, sure, but even those things, because he, he was promoting the James Brown yeah. doc. But those interviews are still short interviews. Right. And it's still a lot of just being entertaining. I'm Mick Jagger, the character that's fun, as, a, and as opposed to really going in depth about stuff. He just, you know, just isn't really willing to or wanting to. Um, but I got him to. And mm. that was partially by... Um, you know, uh, getting his respect and getting his fascination with me because we were both so into the same music. And I know more about it than he does, more about some aspects of it, like Solomon Burke. And so suddenly there's something for him to get from me. It's not a one-way street. Uh, that's, but we're, we're getting way off topic. Here, I know, but, <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I'm, I, have my, I have my own Solomon Burke story. Oh, good, I got cool. one. I, can, I got one to lay on you. I Great. can lay one down on you. Let me hear it. We played with Solomon Burke at the Pink Pop Festival in Holland. Sure, I know the festival, yeah. In 2003. Cool. And I had to meet him right, because of, of Soul Alive and, and everything else I've heard. And so he was so nice to me, and he was with his da- one of his daughters and one of his sons. He's got so many kids. Yep. And um, uh, I told him the story of how I was inspired by him and Soul Alive and everything and how it inspired my performance. And then he goes, you are now my godson. Ah, I love it. And, and uh, he said, you know, you come down to the church and... I mentioned my girlfriend at the time, and he's like, I'll marry you and all this stuff. And then I emailed his son after mm-hmm. we exchanged emails. And because we had an album out called Born a Lion at the time, which I think I gave you earlier. So uh, his son called me Lion. They just, he called me Lion. After a while, you know, communication fizzled out. Right, right. And especially after he passed away. But, but to that point, he was, he, he, in that moment, he called, he said, you are now my godson, I'm your godfather, and the, someone took a photo of that moment. That's great. On his uh, ginormous golf cart that they wheeled him around <laughs> backstage. It has to be ginormous, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I had that as a kind of like a feather in my cap. I walked around on clouds for the rest of the day after that. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, nice, so nice. I got one I can lay down. I don't think Mick... Was ever anointed the godson of uh, oh, maybe? But, but I saw Mick being anointed by Solomon Burke as the new king of rock and soul. Uh, really? The, oh yeah! On the tour, when you guys did that show opening up for the Stones at the Palais Royale, yeah. their warm-up show, that was an interesting tour because they were playing theaters, hockey arenas, and stadiums in different cities. Right. Certain cities yeah. got all three. Wow. Well, L.A. was one of those. And, of course, I wanted to see one of the theater shows Mm. because the theater shows, they weren't doing the typical repertoire. They're doing a lot of the soul stuff that, you know, like that's how strong my love is. Everybody needs somebody to love, the Solomon turn. Things that they don't ever play live when they play the bigger shows because most fans aren't going to know them. So I went out to the Wiltern to see that just before my first interview with Mick and Solomon was opening up, which had me even more excited because I was hoping they'd 
perform together. And of course they did. Solomon came out during the stone set and they did Everybody Needs Somebody to Love together. And then Solomon takes his cape, the famous cape, and he puts it around Mick and he says, and he crowns Mick the new king of rock and soul. And Mick's trying to defer and go, no, 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 no. And Solomon's insisting and leaves the cape on him and walks off stage. Now Solomon's a huge man, as you well know, a, you know, a gargantuan man. And Mick holds out the cape and of course Mick's this skinny little thing. And uh, he invites Keith and Ronnie into the cape. And he has, the cape actually envelops all three of them. It's a hysterical moment. It was a total hysterical moment. So Solomon crowned King Amek, the new king of rock and soul. Okay. Not quite godson, but, you know, pretty cool. Pretty cool. cool. Pretty it was pretty cool. funny, and that's it was that moment that allowed me, I and mean, when I did meet Mick about a month later for our first interview, um, I said, you know, I was at the Wilter, and I saw that, and it was, I was laughing. My, and Mick goes, you're kidding me. And I said, no, 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 it was great, because I'm friends with Solomon, and you guys actually turned me on to Solomon. And, um, you know, I was hoping you guys were going to do it, but it was hysterical. We were laughing about that. Then I started telling him a few Solomon stories and blah, blah, blah. And then eventually we pivoted back to 1962 and the London Blues R&B scene that Stones came out of. And Mick went into depth in a way that I've never heard him go into depth about that period. Wow. But it was that was the way to do it. Right. Wow. I mean, yeah, I don't know how we got onto this, but this is great. Uh, we got into Jackie trusting me, I think. If that, and you're yeah. talking about the interviewer. Oh, Little you want to know Richard. how I got to William Bell? And I said, well, we've been oh, friends yeah, yeah, forever. Right. Oh, that, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, so yeah. back on that, um, I guess, you know, your access to Jerry Mercer is, uh, you know, April Wine. Yeah, that's easy. And Mash but, McCann. But then there's like, um, you don't mention them. They're anonymous in the, in the liner mm. notes. But it was like, where did you find like an anonymous closeted Jackie fan? Is it just someone you know? Who, no, no. Um, I was putting out things. I mean, Facebook's a great avenue these days, of course. But on Facebook, I was asking for anybody who'd seen Jackie to contact me. And if people knew people who'd seen Jackie, because I wanted to talk to them about the experience of what Jackie was like live. Right. And somebody got a hold of me and said their hairdresser had seen Jackie. So a little nervous about talking to me because he doesn't want his name used. And I said, well... I'm cool with that um, if he's you know willing to talk. So they put us together. And um, that's how I talked to that particular individual. Right. And, of course, I you know, respected his requests. And the record company was pissed about it. They wanted a name. And I said, no, you're not getting a name because that's not the deal with this guy. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't want his name revealed because he's went through a lot of um, harassment when he first came out. And for whatever right. reason, he still doesn't want some people to know that. Yeah. But Jackie was extraordinarily important for him personally in terms of feeling okay about coming out and feeling okay about his sexuality. Yeah, that's the point. Yeah. yeah, the, yeah and I, I wanted it. that story in right. there. It's an important story. And Jackie loved that story. Mm, right. That was important to her. Um, and also, um, God, I don't want to miss anything. Cause I, but, uh, okay, there's two other things. First of all, and I don't know, these are t- two separate subjects, but... The one little tidbit that I found amusing was Funkadelic wanted to oh, yeah. <laughs> in the band, which I thought was quite amusing. And she was kind of, she was freaked out by them, right? Yeah, well, for her, Funkadelic was, um, 
you know, Gary, Gary Scheider wearing a diaper on stage. Jackie'd never do that. That isn't her. And that's the interesting thing about her. So many people, you know, easily get fixated on, oh, yeah, a transgendered person who right. was doing this back then. That's crazy. Yeah. That's wonderful. Freaky. And, yeah. yeah. Right. Whereas Jackie was just normative. Right. Wearing a diaper is not normative <laughs> as far as Jackie's right. concerned. Right. The Funkadelic, and also Jackie never did drugs, by the way, or drank. Right. Jackie's been straight edge all the way, which is one reason why at the age of 77, she's still incredible health. Right. Um, but uh, so Funkadelic, it never would have worked. George is too crazy. George Clinton mm-hmm. is way too crazy. I did three CDs with Funkadelic. I know what those guys are like. It's nuts working, <laughs> trying to do any work with them. Right. He's been days trying to get something done. Right. And um, it just, you know, for Jackie, it was. Curious, yeah. and I'm sure I can understand why George would have wanted her. You know, a flat, you know, well, I won't say flamboyantly gay, but a very clearly with unapologetic out gay person back then. Right. Let alone a great singer and performer would have just added one more dimension to the whole Rainbow Nation that Funkadelic really represented. Yeah. Um, but for Jackie, it just never gonna happen. And I think that was the right decision, <laughs> to be honest. As much so. as I love Funkadelic and Jackie. But I just thought about that combination. I'm like, what? 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 what you kind of like to have seen it once. Yes. One exactly, gig. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, but I mean, it, it, you know, never, ever, ever, ever would have worked. Right. That right. band is just way too untogether. Not in a bad way, but in a way that wouldn't work for her. Right. Right, and I know them really well, so I know both sides of that equation. Because because George Clinton has spent a lot of time in Toronto and has family here, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But that's not why I know him. I know him right. because I've just been involved in three reissues and right. inter- interviewed them all extensively, and uh, it's an extraordinary, dysfunctional, insane apparatus. It's amazing it ever survived to get anything done. But of course they made some of the greatest records and those mothership shows from the late seventies were just beyond belief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So hey <laughs> it can happen in different ways. Yeah. The fact Funkadelic ever happened is a miracle, but it's great. Yeah. Um about maybe this is connected, the Toronto mural Toronto Heritage commissioned that right. mural at Young in College. Yeah. There's two murals by the way. There's one in the gay village too. Oh, I didn't know. It was done a couple oh. years earlier. Oh, like, I, who was behind that? Um, I can't tell you precisely in terms of the one at Young and College. Uh, the BIA, the, which is a business organization trying to um, accentuate Young Street's incredible musical heritage. I think they had a lot to do with it. Uh, and I don't, but I don't know who picked the figures. It's a really odd group of people. Mm. Ronnie Hawkins is at the very top. Yeah. Then Glenn Gould, who God knows Glenn Gould's a Toronto icon, mm-hmm. but not about Young Street clubs. <laughs> but, you know, he did play the Eden Auditorium, which is now the Carlu, which is on Young Street, so maybe that's okay. That was his favorite space um, when he did perform, which wasn't for very long, of course. Uh, Jackie's number three. Yeah. No, sorry. Um, but, like, n- number right three in the center. Is, number three is... Um, Oh, shoot. The other female singer, Diane Brooks, which is obscure. Then Jackie's number four. But then the weird thing is, you go further down, Muddy Waters is there. Now, Muddy played the Colonial a lot. I saw him when I was 12 and 13 there. But uh, 
he wasn't a, tr- a Canadian or a Torontonian. Yeah, so like, it's kind of it's kind of a weird mishmash. Yeah, but Jackie's dead center. Yeah, that's the thing. And it blew her mind. I went and took a picture of that and sent it to her, right. and she was beside herself. She really thought that nobody remembered or cared. And this whole thing. Like, not only is there that, there's the mural in the gay village, which was done a few years earlier. Two lesbian women in Toronto made a shadow puppet play. They filmed about whatever happened to Jackie Shane. I sent that to Jackie in DVD. It blew her mind. And then all this attention with this reissue, and even the stories I got from people for the liner notes. And I tell Jackie about each one as I interviewed people, what people told me. And, I mean, it was very, very emotional for her and very... Affirming, if you will. Mm-hmm. It, it validated that what she did at that time, which was so long ago, wasn't forgotten, wasn't unimportant, wasn't just about, oh, she had some fun and she had a career for a while. It actually changed a lot of people's lives and people mm-hmm. still cared passionately. It was huge for her. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess I, I'm going to end it here. All right. And say thank you, Professor Bowman, uh, for giving me... Uh, the one-on-one tutorial that I never got at Music and Society. I think I was in, was it Peter Pellucci's? Oh, were you in Peter's uh, tutorial? tutorial? Yeah, oh, too was, bad you weren't in mine. Yeah, I was. I, I <laughs> <laughs> it was great, but still, um, uh, I would have liked to have been in the tutorial where the tutorial leader was wearing a Jesus lizard shirt. I thought that would have been pretty cool. But uh, I finally got my tutorial one-on-one with you, and thank you so much. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Got a new way of loving, baby.